that way. So, Titus chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who are believing in that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent you Artemis, when I sent Artemis to you or, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Neopolis, or Nicopolis, and for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may uh, not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book that we've got to study verse by verse and all the riches that we have found in it. We know, Lord, there's far more riches than we've even explored together as a family. But, Lord, we know that you have spoken very specific things to us as we've studied this book together. And we pray, Lord, this morning, as we sit before you and learn from you and your word, we pray, Lord, that it would not just be an intellectual exercise, Lord, but that our hearts would be yielded to you to speak to us anything you want to speak to us about, anything you want to encourage us about, anything that you want to exhort us in. We, we are yielded before you, Lord. We recognize that you want to use your word to fashion us and to, make, and to make us into the people that you've called us to be, to further conform us into the image of Christ. So we yield now to, to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We commit this time to you. We pray that you'd set it aside for your holy use. We thank you that you have greater plans for us than we have for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me get rid of this fly here. Shoo, fly, shoo. I'm sure that's great for the CD. They appreciate that. Well, as we finish this book today, uh, we've learned, it's only been, we spent three weeks in this book, so it goes by quick. But Paul is in the middle of encouraging a young man in the faith. So often we think of Timothy as his protege and his young man in the faith, but he had many. And Paul, the apostle, inspired by the Spirit, knows that Titus, this young man, is very vulnerable and needs a lot of instruction, needs a lot of encouragement, needs a lot of wisdom, 
Because he's in the middle of something far above his head. You ever been in the middle of something where you're just, you're in over your head, as the saying goes. And, and this is the case with Titus related to ministry. And so often God puts people in ministry, and we're all called to the ministry. Read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. We're all in the ministry. And when we find ourselves in certain places in ministry, so often God puts us in those places, and we are sensing that, that we're in over our head precisely because God wants us to remain dependent upon him. So that when he works in our lives and when he works through our lives, people come to the right conclusion related to why uh, something's happening related to the, th- the kingdom of God and, 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 and why God is at work. They don't want anyone to come to the, he doesn't want anyone to come to the wrong conclusion. Looking at our background, at our pedigree, at our education, whatever it might be, and think, oh, that's just because that person's so brilliant. You know, Paul at one point has said, not many are called. Not many noble are called. And so many of us say, that's me. God uses the foolish of this world to confound the wise. But Paul didn't say there's not any noble that are called. He said not many. So there are some that, as the world looks at, uh, at them, they would esteem them highly and respect them and think they're qualified. But so what does God have to do in that person? He has to, he has to humble them. He has to knock them off uh, their horse, so to speak. And, and he has to put humble them and get their attention so that they can be uh, functioning in humility and serving in humility, not thinking that they have something to bring to the table. Because as we know, Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. So here, Paul is trying to encourage Titus in some very important things. And what he's, he said in chapter 1, if you, if you remember, those of us that were uh, here for that study, that he said, I want you to put some things in order. And sometimes we think that order is mutually exclusive to the Holy Spirit leading. But he's very orderly. He's just not orderly and sometimes in the way that we would expect him to be. But everything should be done decently and in order. And one of the things that Paul wrote to Titus about, as we've seen, is for him to uh, appoint leaders. And so that was the responsibility because God knew, obviously, that these new new works were were starting and these new uh, church plants and people getting saved and so forth that God would need to put leaders there to be able to help them and to serve them and to be an example to them. And, And that isn't an easy task to find, to find people of character. And as we saw, that is what the premium that God put on who he was looking for, people of character. So often we look at education or pedigree or background or you have to, especially for leaders, you know, they have to make sure that they go to cemetery, I mean seminary and, um, uh, and, and they have to be qualified and know their Bible, you know, inside and out, never ever be able to be at a loss for an answer that someone may have related to the scriptures. God doesn't say that. His priority is character. And so in the list that we saw in Titus, and then we went through Timothy, 1 Timothy, verse by verse, we saw in chapter 3 the other qualifications that have to do with character, and God sovereignly puts it in his word twice. That's two, okay, I know I could have done this, but I'm still meaning twice here. Two. He put it in there twice, so to show us, for obviously it's important to him, but also for us to see that it's still his standard no matter where it is. Because we could be tempted to look at 1 Timothy and say, well, God was writing to Timothy related to the situation in Ephesus. 
the city in which Timothy was serving. And though, so in other places, especially in Crete, because as we've seen in chapter 1, it was, it's known for being a very wicked place. God lowers the standard in those places. Well, God wanted to make sure we didn't misunderstand that. He wanted to make sure that we knew that his standard is character no matter where his work is going on. And related to individuals, related to leaders, character is very important. And so that has to happen in related to uh, who he has in the middle of, of the ministry. Character is critically, critically important. And so Paul is speaking to, to, to Titus here related to how the church should function. And remember, we're in the middle of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus constitute what's known as the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy focused on how the church should function, as is basically Titus is, is, is being dealt, you know, Paul's dealing with how the church should function. In the middle of 2 Timothy, where Paul speaks to Timothy related to his personal character, and that was supposed to help him endure hardship. So sandwiched right between how the church should function and related to how God revealed his, his word in the New Testament, he has the preeminence of personal character. And again, he mentions it also in the other two as well. So here, Timothy, or Titus rather, is in the middle of, of something way above his head. And so he's, he's dependent upon the Lord. And, and so he, he knows that this culture is very, very difficult to uh, minister in. In in fact, we're told in chapter one, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And that was one of their own prophets way hundreds of years before this time had said about the Cretans. And that's the island, the island of Crete that Timothy is serving. And as we saw in chapter one, Paul said, this testimony is true. (laughs) Wow. Sometimes we think, Our city is the worst ungodly city, but there are other cities that have reputations greater than our city potentially for that. We can maybe have some of them in our own mind related to what we think is the most ungodly city. But my point is, is that in Crete, the island of Crete was a very, very ungodly place. And so as we saw last week, he left the subject of developing leaders to now helping just the rest of the body know how to function properly. And we saw him uh, deal with older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and, and also uh, dealing with those that were bondservants in the culture because they didn't know how to function. This, this culture was very, very wicked. And, and so if you're, uh, you know, your past is that you're you know, a liar, you're an evil beast, you're a lazy glutton, when, once you come to know the Lord, then there's a whole new way to live. And so he writes to Titus and says, you need to let these people know, these specific people, specific things that they need to focus on and make sure that they maintain these good works. And so we saw that last week. Now, uh, back in chapter 2, if you look back with me quickly, back in chapter 2 in Titus there, I'm not hearing any pages, Russell, come on now, back to chapter 2. Turn with me back there. Maybe you have the double columns and you have, you know, so you're off the hook. But uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, he gives the motivation or the, way, the reason or the, 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 the why of the command of that these people need to change their behavior. He says in verse 11, chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. So he says, Titus, you need to to let these groups of people know the different things that they should make sure that they're maintaining in terms of their personal godliness. But I don't want you to leave out, when you explain this to them, the, the, the power behind what I'm saying or the how related to what I'm saying. How do you accomplish those things? How do these people, how are they supposed to live a godly life? And it's grace. Grace from the beginning to the end, all the way through. Grace brings us, to, brings us to salvation, we see in chapter 2, verse 11. But also, he says in verse 12, that grace teaches us, denying godliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, not only does it bring us to salvation, but grace also teaches us to live holy lives. In some environments, they say you can't teach grace because then they'll just go off and be sinaholics and they'll never ever want to live a holy life. But they don't understand the scriptures and the effect that God's grace has on our lives. Because when you fail over and over again, we all fail over and over again, every single one of us. God still wants to keep working with us, obviously. He still wants to extend his power to us. He still wants to forgive us. He still, he doesn't give up on us ever. Because man outside the church and inside the church. We fail people, but God never fails us. And, and so that's, that's what causes growth because if we don't understand God's grace, when we sin, we go away from him. But if we understand God's grace, when we sin, we go to him. That's a good measure. You have a foundation of God's grace in your life is going to him. And he wants us to go to him all sinful and dirty and all those things just come like to him to, to be cleaned up. So often I tell people when I'm sharing my faith, when they say, oh, let me straighten some things up and then I'll come to God. I say, that's like standing outside of a shower and trying to get clean on on your own somehow before you get in the shower. That doesn't make any sense. You go to him as dirty as you are, as filthy as you are. He knows it anyway. And you submit your life to him and then he cleans you up. As the old saying goes, you can't clean a fish before you catch it. So he has to have us first. And then he has to keep having us and allowing us and us allowing him to continue to make us into the person he wants us to be. And all of us want an overnight, instant, presto, change poof, you know, microwave uh, transformation. And he does that in many ways. But there's still an ongoing, slow work that he does in our lives to make us into the people that he's called us to be. I've walked with the Lord 22 years by the grace of God. I'm still growing. I'm still growing in holiness. I'm still falling short. And, and so it never ends. And so he, we saw that last week. Now this week he begins in verse 1 by saying, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So he begins with remind them. It's important for us to be reminded of things. How many of us have been among God's people, come to a church service, and we've sat down and we hear the pastor teach, and we think, oh, I know that already. How many of us have, have said that before? I hope some of us say that sometimes. I hope so. But I, I do that. You know, when I'm listening to a teaching, I've heard that before. I've read that before and so forth. And, and the, the danger, especially for new, and he's talking to a, a leader here, so that's why I'm bringing it up. The danger for new leaders is to think, I have to come up with something new that no one's ever seen. And they go through the Bible and they're teaching something. i got to have some new twist, something that no one's ever heard or it's, it's going to wow them. And that's a trap because God knows that we need to be reminded of the very same things over and over and over again. 
Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, where he said this, inspired by the Spirit. He said, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the, in the present truth. Yes, I think it right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decrease. So God is very much into reminding his uh, people of things. And that's why when you study through the whole scriptures verse by verse like we do, you get the content in which God is, in the proportion in which God has revealed the doctrines. So it protects me from not majoring on major, not majoring on the minors and not minoring on the majors or having a pet doctrine that I'm into and that's all you hear about or all these other books that I'm reading or whatever. So we focus on the content in which God's revealed it and he, he, what does he talk about a lot in the New Testament? Loving one another, his grace, prayer, preaching the gospel, serving, all these things. He doesn't talk a lot about other things, but he talks about them, they're important, but we don't, he doesn't want us to focus and main, you know, talk about those things all the time when he has all these other things in his word. So that's the protection for us of getting the whole counsel of God, as Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders in John chapter 20. But also, we need to be reminded, not only because we, we forget, but also we're not always obeying something. I mean, well, I heard this Bible study in 1973, and it really impacted me. And so I, I was doing what the, what the Word of God said at that time, and so I don't need to ever hear that again. That's not exactly what God's aiming at. How many of us know that from one week to the next, one day to the next, we may be obeying in a certain area, and then in another area we may not uh, obey. And so it's, he knows that it's always working. It's not just for head knowledge. It's, it's not just to learn facts. It's about to be changed into the image of Christ. And one, at one given point in time, I may be having victory in a certain area, and I may be obeying him in a certain area, but, and then and I hear the same study down the road or the same verses or whatever, I may not be, and he knows that. So he, and I know I'm, I will cover the rest of these verses. I know I'm on the first word of verse one, but there's hope, okay? I want to give you hope. Uh, but he says, be subject to rulers and authorities there. Again, the Cretans were very, very lawless, and, and that was their culture. And so God called Titus to help them live differently and, and in general, as we've seen. But specifically here, now he's wanting to make sure that uh, Paul is, that t Titus doesn't stop reminding them about obeying the laws of the land. And look what he, he, he says there. He says, you, you need to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He said, let every soul be subject, same word again, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So God has placed all authority. And it's, it's healthy for us to think about how God has set things up. And if you've been abused by authority, whether, whether it's parental or church authority or government authority, you can kind of wince when the subject of authority is brought up. But the solution to bad authority is not having no authority. The solution is having good authority. 
And so even if we subject ourselves to bad authorities, you know, because obviously governing authorities can be corrupt, but God still looks at that and says, I want you to, to, to submit and be humble because I have a place of blessing for you. Every time we obey the authority structure that God's placed in our lives, and I mean healthy authority structure, uh, he, he blesses us. Now, and even when we submit to unhealthy authority structure, he'll still bless us, but he's, God's never going to want us to obey some kind of authority that goes against his word. So especially biblical loving authority, God has called us to a submit under that and that's a place of blessing it's not a place of detriment it's not a place where God's trying to 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 uh, hurt us or or make, make our lives miserable he knows that it's his place of blessing so Titus is supposed to remind them of that and he says the reason there to be ready for every good work when we are subject to the authorities that God has set up and we're law-abiding citizens we're driving the speed limit Ooh, that can I can get quiet real quick in a room driving. I'm the, I'm whoa. Where is this, is this the Indianapolis Speedway? What what's happening? And and we can blow through, do California stops. I mean, there's all kinds. I mean, I wonder if they say that in Minnesota. You ever wonder that? I did a Minnesota stop. I didn't quite. You know, California stop. There's there's the you know income tax evasion. There's there's oh I'm going to copy CDs that are copyrighted. That's okay. You know, uh, there's all kinds of these little things that we talk about that God's watching and and He wants us to obey every law. Christians should be the most law-abiding citizens in the in in the world. And and you have to remember the context in which Paul's writing. This is a Roman Empire. We don't get a pass because people are governments are corrupt and they're oppressive and all that. God still says you need to submit to that and that and let him work out the details because even if they're not doing what's right, he's still going to bless me and work through those situate that situation for my good. And so obeying the government authorities frees up a lot of time and we're supposed to be freed up for good works. He continues in verse two. He says, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And so we're supposed to not slander government authorities. Those that are in positions of, of uh, power and authority, we shouldn't slander. We shouldn't speak evil of them. We shouldn't be known for the one that always speaks against, uh, you know, the politicians. And, you know, there's a lot to say, you know, related to what, there's a lot of valid things we could say, but the point is it doesn't edify. And edify means to build up. It doesn't build us up to, speak, to be speaking evil. We can't be known in the community for those as those who speak evil against those in authority. But he calls us to be gentle and showing, I like these two words there, I mean the same word twice, the word all. You see the repeating word there, all? All humility to all men. Because sometimes on a good day, I can show some humility to some men. And I'm like, woohoo, yeah, I'm doing it. But he says, no, the standard is all humility to all men. And, and that's the standard. We fall short of that. Uh, but he is still working in our lives to make us more humble and to submit ourselves, and not just to some people, but to all that are, uh, have been placed over us in authority. Verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. What a great description of us. <laughs> he nails it. Now, we just heard a testimony from Brother Ken share his, 
his salvation testimony. That basically sums it up. But that's the case with all of us. And we can look at ourselves and we always measure ourselves off of other people so we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But the standard is, is the perfection and holiness of God and the law of Moses, the, the 613 laws there that show this perfect standard. And it wasn't intended to, to be, we're supposed to get righteous from it. It was intended for us to, to look at it as a mirror and see that we need a savior. That was the purpose of the law. But when you think about Paul, I mean, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about his, his testimony and who he used to be. I mean, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said, concerning the law, blameless. But here, this is what he says about himself, though, before he knew Christ. How could he be concerning the law, blameless, but yet be all these things? Because blameless related to how everyone else sees things. Everyone else would look at him and say, oh, he's this great guy on the outside. But on the inside, he, we don't know how people are. And people don't know how we are. And that's why we need to be uh, honest and pure or, or, or forthright with our, our issues and things we're struggling with, especially in the body of Christ, because we need to support one another in prayer and, and be patient and gracious with each other. But I love this accurate description, this very vivid description, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, and pleasures. Living in malice. Malice is when you hate somebody and you have the intent to hurt them. And envy, you know, envy is not just jealous. Envy is like you, you, you want that something that they have and you don't, you not only want it for yourself, but, but you want them to lose it. I mean, that's pretty bad. You want them to not have it and suffer or whatever as a result of not having it. That's how bad our hearts are. And hateful and hating one another. So we're being hated, we're hating back, and, and that's just who we are. Sometimes people say, well, God knows my heart. Those, those, the people that don't know the Lord yet. God knows my heart. And sometimes you want to say, yes, he does. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Because there's things in your heart that he sees that aren't good. And, and, and so he sees every part of who we are, but yet he still wants to save us. He still wants to make us into a new uh, creation. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, verses 4 through 7, it's going to explain the gospel, and it's going to explain what happens when a person gets saved. He says in verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, or toward men appeared, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. I want to stop there. So first of all, he says in verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared towards men. Now think about sharing the gospel with somebody. And we can do it in such a way where they're not receiving any love or kindness. They feel like they've encountered a police officer <laughs> that's going to bust them. Or, or an attorney that's an expert on the law that's showing us where we're falling short. That's not how we share the fa the, 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 our faith. It's not how we preach the gospel. We need to be loving and kind. God showed his love and his kindness towards mankind in sending his son. And it's the goodness of God which leads to repentance, we're told in scripture. So as we share our faith, we need to be kind. We need to be loving. We need to tell the truth, of course, and be honest. But we need to do it in a loving and, and kind way. And it just shows God's motivation behind sending Jesus. You know, as we're thinking about Christmas time, because it's coming up upon us, you know, every day we celebrate Jesus' birth uh, and, and his resurrection, every day. 
but it's a time in our culture or whatever, and so we're, we're thinking about it. And we have to focus and remember that the, the motivation that God had was love and kindness towards us. He wasn't begrudgingly sending Jesus, oh, I guess I have to do it and show myself faithful because that's who I am and, and wanting to hold back but yet being disciplined within himself and sending Jesus because he's kind of wanting to hold back because he knows how wicked we are. No, not at all. And if we've been raised in a harsh environment with maybe harsh parents, we can have a distorted view of God. But we need to submit our thoughts and our minds and our background of who we think God is not projecting from our past, we need to submit those things before the Lord in his word and say, what is God, how has God revealed himself, how he really is? Even if it goes against what I've thought before, I need to trust by faith that that's who he says he is, and it's true. And so that's, what, that's the motivation behind why he gave Jesus, is because he was kind and loving. And then he says, how he saved us was not by works of righteousness, verse 5, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, if you were to go out, and if, or if I were to go out and interview people this morning, I went to the Bass Pro Shop, and I was outside talking with them and uh, sharing with people, and I asked the average person, if you were to stand before God right now, let's say that you were in a car wreck, let's say that you uh, died and, and you stood before God, and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? probably 95 to 98% of people are going to say, because I'm a good person, because my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. And so I hope God's grading on a curve. How many of us have heard that? Hope he's grading on a curve. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is that I could never save myself. I could never do enough good to outweigh my bad. Just like if we went before a judge and he was responsible or she was responsible for sent sentencing us and uh, we've done something horrific he, even if we've spent a lot of time doing community service already or charitable works and we said, let that outweigh this horrific thing that I've done, if that judge said okay, none of us would respect that judge. Each count, not just each sin, but each count related to this world's legal system, we have 14 counts of doing this or whatever. It's not just one item, it's how many times you've done it. Each thing has to be paid for. And we've fallen short because the standard is perfection for so long and, and so consistently, there is no way we could ever uh, do enough good to outweigh that because we'd have to uh, be perfect from the beginning. And so Jesus knew that that wasn't the case in our lives, and that's why God showed his kindness and love to send Jesus. So it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. You've done wicked, you've sinned or whatever, and God withholds that and doesn't judge you related to that. And then grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. And so he's saying that's how it happened. And notice he says he saved us, past tense. The Bible talks about three, it describes salvation three different ways. Before we come to know Christ, he, you know, we hear the gospel and we, we receive Christ and we become saved. You know, John wrote it in, in his epistle this way, that I write these things to you that you may know that you have, past tense, eternal life. It's already happened. And, and so there's a point in time when we receive Christ, we have our sins forgiven, but then there's a process of the Bible describes as being saved. 
where it's the process of him making us more like Christ, and we're in the process of being delivered from this world into to heaven. And then he says someday we will be saved, and that's talking about physically being delivered from this world to heaven, and I get my new body at that time, at the time of the rapture or, uh, you know, when we see him. So he's, those, those are three distinct descriptions there where we see how God saves a person. So he says, you've already been saved. You've already been um, what we're referred to as regeneration, which, which he gets to in the last part of the verse there. Look in the rest of verse 5. He says, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So this is the actual, mecha- not mechanism, but the actual uh, way that God works in a human heart when he saves somebody. And it goes like this. Someone trusts in Christ alone to pay their way to heaven. He trusts in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not any righteous works that they're trying to do to earn it, any religious works. They just trust completely in that sacrifice to pay their way to heaven, 100%. And at that moment in time, they've repented. They've made a U-turn in the road of life. They've accepted that God wants them to live a different kind of life. He comes in by his Holy Spirit, he makes their dead spirit alive. That's what regeneration is. When we're, we're, when we're born, we're born physically, but we're born dead spiritually because we're born with a sinful nature. We're born separated from God because our, our spirit's dead. We inherit that from our parents and they got it from their parents all the way back to the first parents. It gets passed down all the way. And we need to understand this to be able to explain this to people because sometimes they want to know, how does all this work? You know, what happens to me? How, what's the, what's, how the, what are the mechanics of it? How does it function? Well, when you place your trust in Christ alone, you turn from the way that you're going and you turn to Christ, you receive him as your Lord and Savior, he comes in and makes your dead spirit alive. Now you have that communication with God that, that you were created for. You have that relationship that you have. The Holy Spirit is put inside of our lives as a down payment, as, a, as a, like a deposit of what's to come related to our new body. So Paul is describing it very vividly here. And he, I love how he describes it as washing. Because we're dirty before we come to know Christ. And we're dirty after we come to know Christ. And that's why 1 John 1.9 is there, the Christian bar of soap. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does that by the Spirit. But here he says it's washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's how, what he says happens in us. And it's a beautiful thing. I remember when it happened for me in 1990. I was 21. I was 20, actually. And I was in that church. The preacher was screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> it wasn't Pastor Damien from Calvary Chapel Modesto. I mean, he can get up there, too, in decibels at times. But it wasn't him. <laughs> it was another guy. And he was yelling and screaming. Uh, and... I just, I just surrendered my life right then. No invitation, no one preaching the gospel. I already heard the gospel. I just right then just trusted in him. And he came into my life, and I've never been the same since. And, and so he loves to do that, and he wants to use us in that. And we can get so focused on what's going on, we can forget people are one heartbeat away from a Christless eternity. And so he wants us to be praying for people. He wants us to be preaching the gospel and changed lives are what he wants to have as a result of our faithfulness to preaching that gospel. Then he says in verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice the word whom. Whom he poured out on us abundantly 
Well, who's he talking about? Well, the end of verse 5 is the Holy, talks about the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 6, whom he poured. That means that the Holy Spirit's a person. He says that right there in verse 6. And we're told that in other places. But he pours the Holy Spirit who is a person. He's one of the three in the Godhead. He pours that person out on us abundantly uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he wants Titus to remember. Titus, you're different. You've been changed. You used to be all these things that we all were. But God's changed you. And now God's changing people in this wicked culture of, uh, of Crete. And I want you to have, be bold in sharing what they need to hear, not forgetting that it's by the grace of God and by God coming into their lives when they're saved and has, as a result, having them grow in their faith and become different people. Because it's so easy for us to think that certain people are beyond God's help. Who would have thought the Apostle Paul would be saved? Who in the, I mean, the disciples didn't even believe that. They wouldn't even go meet Paul after he got saved. It took Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that was what his name meant, to go seek him out and find him and trust that it really was this, this, this Saul of Tarsus that had been changed into the Apostle Paul. So God really does change that. And we can think that people are beyond God's reach. We can think that there's some people that have sinned too much and, and, or, or, or that, you know, they think they've sinned too much and we're trying to encourage them. There's no sin that is too great for God to forgive. No one's too bad to be saved, but yet no one's too good to be saved either. As it's been said, the ground at the cross is level. Everybody stands at the same height at the foot of the cross. Everybody needs salvation. Everybody needs forgiveness. And, and, and God paid for that. All of our sins, even the ones that people think, God can't forgive that. I've done too much. I've, I've, I mean, if you only knew, I've heard this so many times, if you only knew what I've done, if I came into your church, the, the walls would cave in and the ceiling would fall. Like, well, it's a pretty strong ceiling. It's pretty reinforced here. God knew all of our sins before we were even born. He died for those on the cross. He knows that. It's not taken by surprise. And there's nothing. We can't exhaust his grace. His grace is greater than all of our sin. And we never can exhaust that. So I love the word in verse 6, abundantly. He poured out. He could have just poured out on us. But the Holy Spirit wants us to know he poured out on us abundantly the Holy Spirit. And that means abundantly changed lives. Jesus said, I have not, uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they'd have life and have it more abundantly. Well, abundant life happens because of abundant grace and abundant power coming from the Holy Spirit on our lives. And then we're, we are forever changed. He says in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that word justified is, is a word that all that means is, you can remember it this way, just as if I've never sinned. It technically means acquitted, that we've been acquitted. Having been, notice past tense, having been justified, past tense. How many Christians that are not in, they're not in environments where they're learning about grace and being taught what God's word says are trying to be justified? They're trying to be acquitted? They're trying to get God to, 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 to love them or to accept them? They feel like their salvation's at risk at any moment in time? They're hindered or stifled in their spiritual growth because of that. It's only when we have the foundation of God's grace and, and know that our positional standing with him is perfect 
our legal positional standing with him is perfect, in Christ Jesus, that growth comes. Every, everything before that, or, or despite that, is going to cause uh, uh, you know, a shaky ground for us to stand on, and we're going to be uh, going back and back and back, trying to get God to love us more and accept us, and he's already there, accepting us. Now, he says here that by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When you receive an inheritance... Do you usually pay for that inheritance? No. You usually just receive it because of who you are, right? It's a beautiful word that he says here, heirs. We are heirs because, precisely because we didn't do anything to pay for it, as he's been speaking about, but because we are who we are. We're sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into his family once we become believers. And he says, so you are heirs. Everything that I have to give you is yours freely, and, and you have this confidence there. That's what the word hope means. Confidence of eternal life. Eternal life starts now. It's a quality of life. And, and, and there's no end to it. So it's a beautiful thing to be thankful for. And then he says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now he says, this is a faithful saying. This is the fifth time that we've seen those two words, faithful saying, in the pastoral epistles, in first, second, first and Second Timothy and Titus. Fifth time he said, this is a faithful saying. So he's saying to those leaders, Timothy and Titus, this is very reliable. It should be accepted without any reservation. It's worthy of all acceptance here. So what does he say? These things I want you to affirm constantly. So that's maybe why you hear me say these things constantly. When I'm talking about maintaining good works, I'm talking about all the time about serving, about giving our lives away, that church isn't supremely for myself. Church is supremely for God and for others. And when the church is functioning how it should function, then God gets the glory and people grow and it becomes the place of disciple making that God intended it to be. So then we can be mature and go out there and preach the gospel. So that's how God has... Uh, set it up. So he says, affirm these things constantly to be careful to be to maintain good works. And he gives the motivation at the end of verse 8. Why should you do, do these things, Titus? These things are good and profitable to men. We need to hear it. It's good for us. We need to be con constantly reminded that we need to maintain good works. Now he gets into a few practical things, verses 9 on through 15 here through, as we close out the chapter. And he says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. There's so many controversies out there. Now, back then it was about the law. And so they were striving and debating and talking about genealogies and what all these, you know. And, and Paul has already spoken to, T to Timothy about not getting involved in these things. So the verb that he says there in verse 8 is avoid. Avoid these things because because leaders can get sucked into these things how many angels can dance on the head of a pin can god lift a rock or make a rock he can't lift and all these things and 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 they don't they don't produce anything and he says there at the end of verse 9 they're unprofitable and they're useless god has a very narrow scope for us to focus on related to what we should be talking about and discussing and they have to be edifying and we can get off into all these side things and get involved in all these controversies and it can hijack our time to the point where 
we're all about these other things to the the point where we're neglecting the things we should be about. How many people that are debating on Facebook today about arguing about doctrine when there are people out there that need to be served, people out there that help poor need to be helped, the, the people that are, uh, you know, in bondage to, to various things, and people that are dying that are going to hell, or, or people aren't being loved, and, you know, all these things that take up so much of our time that God says, don't be sidetracked with those things, Titus. It's a good exhortation for us. But he adds to it in verse 10, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. This is a very specific command for Titus. It's not optional. He doesn't have the option of not rejecting. He doesn't have the option of giving more chances. It says, after the first and second admonition, if a man is divisive, they're dividing the body of Christ. People can divide the body of Christ over bad doctrine. They can even divide the body related to good doctrine, believe it or not. (laughs) They can use that to be divisive. But it says here that the leader should... After two warnings, two admonitions, reject them. And, and not reject them like you never want anything to do with them again and whatever, but you put them out of the, the, the fellowship to, for, for God to discipline them because being among God's people is a privilege. And to protect the body, you know, of course, is the main reason, but to also work in that person's life. And so I've had to do that at times. And I, it's, I hate it. I don't enjoy it. I always make it clear that this is, this is an environment where we're, not, we're called to be in unity. We already have laid out what we believe, where we're coming from, and what you're trying to yank us, the direction you're trying to yank us in is not where we're going, and that's how we see things biblically. They go to a place where that believes that. And so you know, sometimes you have to do that, and the leader has to step up and do it at times, and it's never fun, but he doesn't have the option. You know, Paul tells him, do it. He has to do it. And he gives the motivation of what's going on in the person, knowing that a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So no matter what that person says, usually they think that they're the most spiritual person in the galaxy, you know, or whatever, or at least more spiritual than you, and you're not seeing it. Uh, uh, you know, the true motivation is if they're willing to divide God's people, then they are warped and sinning and self-condemned. That's what God says. It doesn't matter what they say. So Titus was to know, no matter what comes out of their mouth, this is what God says and how God assesses that person. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at uh, Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they, may, uh, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. So, so what Paul was going to do, he's going to send the, one of these guys to uh, Titus, so that Titus could come to him because he said he's going to, he wanted to spend uh, uh, the winter there. So he wants to have Titus so he, he's concerned about the flock. He knows that the flock needs leaders. And so he's, he, they're doing a little substitution there uh, like they do on a, a sports field. They're doing a little subbing. And so he send, he's going to be sending in the sub there uh, for those people there in Crete. And, and he also um, you know, wants them to know that, 
he sent Zenos, this lawyer, and a pot. Yeah, God can, can save lawyers. That We need to acknowledge that, you know. Um, we don't know if it was actually a real, like, civil lawyer or a Jewish lawyer, you know, an expert in the law. But I'm just joking with lawyers. But, I mean, he, he uh, obviously, those people brought this letter to him. And he says, don't, don't bog them down there. They have other things to do. Send them on. But don't just send them without what they need. Make sure their, their necessities are met, their urgent needs and so forth, so that they may remain fruitful. So he's giving Titus specific instructions uh, for, for that. And then he closes in verse 15. He says, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So he wants them, those that are Titus is serving, to know that those that Paul's with greet them and that they love them as well. And then he ends, like he ends so many epistles, grace be with you all. He begins most books with grace and peace. Again, he, he started every one of the pastoral epistles with, with grace, peace, and mercy, but he always includes grace there, and, and it's great bookends to a book because everything starts with grace, everything ends with grace, and, and so all of us, he wants all of us to just bask in the grace of God all the time. And as I said in, in, in previous uh, teachings, in Ephesians, we're told we're going to explore the riches of God's grace for the ages to come. We will never exhaust the grace of God. It's not just for salvation. It's not just for living a holy life. It's not just for looking for the return of Christ, as we saw last week. It's also to, to be able to be with the Lord and learn about who he is because his grace far exceeds even our need for grace. The most that we could ever need of him, of his grace, he's still beyond that related to who he is and how gracious he is. So as we close out the pastoral epistles, a main theme has been character and a main theme has been God gets to have the church be what he wants it to be and leaders don't get to decide how, that, how that's going to be because it's God's church, it's not their church. And so as we you know, meditate on these things and, and uh, leave here today thinking about these themes, you know, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring to our hearts very specific things related to our personal character, related to things we need to grow in, and because he wants us to look like Christ to people. He wants us to talk like Christ. He wants us to, to, to like it's been said, sometimes we're the only sermon. Our lives, you know, our lives represent the only sermon that people will ever hear. So he wants us to live a different kind of life, but we can't do that in the power of our own strength. We'll fail every time. We can't roll up our sleeves and say, I'm going I'm to do this in my own strength. I've failed a billion times, and this time it's going to be different. Well, you could make that declaration, and that is meaningful, but it's only in the context of letting God do the work. If we try to do it in our own strength, we're going to fail. If we let him do the work in our lives, and if we yield our lives to him and let him bear fruit through our lives, then it will be sustainable. Then it will be consistent. And he's so patient with us. I'm so thankful that he's patient. He's not in a hurry. He's not in a rush. He's very patient with us. He knows when he gets us, he gets a project, a very long-term project. And he's okay with that. And we will never exhaust all the grace that we need for it. So let's take that to him as we, uh, as we uh, sing this last song as we close. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. We thank you for changing our lives. We thank you for making us into different people. We can't take credit for it. We have no capacity to earn a right standing with you. We have no capacity to live a holy life apart from you. So make all of us here 
uh, just be the recipients of your grace that you want us to be. We thank you that we can never exhaust your grace. Your grace is greater than all of our sin. And I pray you'd encourage any here, Lord, that have doubted your power and your, the sufficiency in being the gracious God that you are to change them and how they know they need to be changed. I pray you'd encourage them, set their minds according to your word. And I pray that you'd bring all the encouragement and the, and the hope and uh, all the comfort that they need, Lord. We thank you that all of us need your grace every day. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.